and because the only way to really protect yourself is by vaccination, there's going to be a predicted surge in those states that are have a low vaccination rate sometime in uh, mid to late August through October. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill, Fred, uh, again, as always, thank you for joining the podcast and uh, keeping our listeners informed. I thought I'd start off with what has been a pressing question from the week. Uh, the World Health Organization, who came out with uh, new guidelines in light of the uh, Delta variant. And the CDC also released new guidelines, which appeared to be, didn't appear to be, were in fact contrary to what the World Health Organization uh, was advising. And I thought maybe you could go through that for our audience and maybe square the circle for us and how people should be thinking about so, David, the controversy uh, began to develop earlier this week when early in the week the World Health Organization uh, put out very, very specific guidance, which is somewhat unusual for them, that everybody should be back in masks, regardless of whether you were vaccinated or not. The next day, the CDC came out with different guidance and said that, no, in the United States, if you are vaccinated, you do not need to wear a mask or social distance, except in those certain limited circumstances, as we know, which uh, is primarily uh, in mass transit type situations. And the bottom line is that they, they said that the World Health Organization is having to give advice to a world overall where the overall vaccination rate around the world is just 10%. And this much more infective Delta variant has taken off and is basically taking over everywhere. So anything that can be done to delay the, uh, the spread of the Delta variant, the spread of the disease, while vaccination rates uh, are increased throughout the world is beneficial in the United States, and which also applies uh, to some extent to to Europe, uh, the UK, is that the masks aren't going to make as big a difference because this is spreading only amongst people who are essentially only amongst people who are not vaccinated. In the United States, um, vaccination rates are well over 60%. In Europe, they're not quite as high, but they're comparable. In the United Kingdom, they're about the same. So places where you have high vaccination rates uh, and you have high overall immunity combination of vaccines plus natural immunity from prior infection, we don't need the masks on people who are vaccinated. I agree with Bill uh, on his assessment of the issue. And one of the key uh, facts that was shared by the CDC is in the U.S., 99.5% of all hospitalizations as of March are in those that were unvaccinated. So the vaccine protects against hospitalization. The other data that they've uh, reconfirmed is that when you are vaccinated, you are not uh, very unlikely to be able to spread the virus to others who are not vaccinated. So for both those reasons, Masks, which were designed to prevent you from spreading to others and, and reduce somewhat your uh, susceptibility infection, there's no need for a mask. It serves no purpose in those who are vaccinated. Fred, the two points you just made are so important. 
I'm, I'm going to ask you to repeat it for the audience. Okay, so the masks were indicated primarily to prevent you from infecting others if you were asymptomatic. We know that when you are vaccinated, even if you're exposed to a virus again, the levels that would be carried in your nose are so low that you have a 96% chance of never spreading it to others. Therefore, a mask for that purpose would, would be not helpful because the vaccine is serving that purpose. The other issue is they do reduce the inoculum that you receive and therefore are somewhat protective. Well, again, the what we know is that if, if you are vaccinated, uh, that you will not end up in the hospital. 99.5% of all hospitalizations since March have been those who were not vaccinated. Uh, I believe... David, uh, let me just clarify yeah, numbers on, on yeah. vaccination data. The, the, on the vaccines in the United States, we have just shy of 60% of all Americans who have been vaccinated with at least one dose, and well over 60% of all adults have been vaccinated. At this point, we're getting actually pretty close to 70% of all adults vaccinated. Yeah, Bill, the one problem with, we, we have uh, uh, two, uh, two conditions in our country. There are states where the vaccination rates are in the mid-30%. And then there are states that are up at uh, nearly 80%. And the problem, uh, my understanding from uh, some of the modeling that's being done, in those states that have a low vaccination rate, taking into account the Delta agent, which has the estimated reproductive rate, is five to six. That means one person on average will infect five to six people. Contrast this to the original wild type where one person could infect two to 2.5 people. So because it's so much more infectious and because there's such the only way to really protect yourself is by vaccination, um, there's going to be a predicted surge in those states that are have a low vaccination rate sometime in uh, mid to late August through October. And the estimate is we could have forty to 50,000 excess deaths in those areas where vaccination has not been taken uh, seriously. Just in terms of what the data continues to tell us is the vaccines are effective. Those who get it are not getting the virus, and certainly not being hospitalized. Those who are not remain at significant exposure, and we're going to continue to see consequences from that. Fair summation, Fred, Bill? Yes, and it demonstrates something that, that I've been saying, we've said on here uh, from time to time over all these podcasts. Um, this is another demonstration that this cannot be looked at as a monolithic pandemic. This is a collection of regionally linked epidemics, and each one of them has to be looked at differently. And I think what you're also saying, Bill, is that the common denominator here in terms of the rates and hearing this from Fred is whether people have been vaccinated. Yeah, and I think the business world, depending on where you're located, uh, your policies may be, need to be a little bit different. Um, certainly in areas where there's a high prevalence of, uh, 
of people that are not vaccinated and a high degree of spread within a community, I think you have to be more conservative. You have to probably encourage more people working at home, few people coming into the office, and perhaps only those that are vaccinated should be allowed to come into a a workspace. Uh, Any additional perspectives or insights about the uh, age groups that should be vaccinated? Is the data telling us anything about particularly the younger folks, 12 to 18? So is there new data, both in terms of the efficacy of the vaccine, the importance of taking it, as well as any particular safety issues. I think one big thing is that CDC put out uh, some uh, a nice graphical form last week. The big concern with younger people, especially young males, both in this 12 to 18 and maybe a little bit spilling over into the uh, slightly you know, older young adults, has been this fear of uh, myocarditis. And so what CDC looked at for any given population, they looked at the myocarditis rate and then a matched group of people who had been not been immunized and their ICU hospitalization rate. And at young ages, even where the, the myocarditis rate is at the highest, which is still very, very low rate of this happening on the order of one in a million, the expected hospitalization rate for a matched group of the same size is much, much higher. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but it was significant. You look at the graph, and it's the, the one side of the graph that has the uh, the number of hospitalizations is so much higher than the number with the myocarditis. And on top of that, when the myocarditis does develop because of the vaccine, it is typically self-limited and with just fairly routine treatments, typically outpatient treatments, it resolves with no sequelae. Fred, maybe maybe you will explain what that condition is and what the symptoms are. Oh yeah, myocarditis is inflammation of the heart, and uh, for some reasons, uh, you sometimes your immune system can accidentally uh, attack your own heart. Uh, We see this. We see myocarditis predominantly in viral infections, and that certainly can occur with COVID nineteen. In fact, uh, that's the key point is that COVID-19, if you're infected with this, is far more likely to give you myocarditis than the vaccines are. So uh, it makes every great sense to become vaccinated. And I know parents, as we've talked about before, any negative, anything that's negative, the brain holds on to. And parents may say, oh, I don't want my child to get myocarditis. Well, I've got news for you. If you don't vaccinate them, they're more likely to get myocarditis from COVID-19. Another big concern that I just saw yesterday is in Brazil, they are seeing young people uh, dying at a much higher rate than any other country. There have been a thousand deaths in those under the age of 18. As compared to the U.S., we've had 100 deaths under age 18. And they think that the belief now is, the, the hypothesis is, that the P1 or the gamma uh, uh, variant, which is also called the Brazilian variant, is more virulent in children. In other words, it causes more severe disease in children. Unfortunately, that, that same variant is also circulating in the U.S. And in one area, I think in Illinois, it's up at about 16%. 
but in general, it's probably more like 5%. So children, if they are unlucky enough to encounter that variant, they could become very sick and even die. Fortunately, there's a little bit of evidence, very soft at this point, that the vaccine rate is ticking up a little bit, at least in the United States, as people, some of the resistant people are realizing that, well, this, this Delta variant does have potential to be worse for people who are unvaccinated. And so it is those people who are kind of sitting on the fence and figured, well, I'll just be the benefit of herd immunity and let everybody else get vaccinated. They're realizing that they're they're putting themselves at a lot of risk when they do that. So we are starting to see the vaccination rates go up a little bit. But by the same token, most of these uh, large vaccination centers are starting to close down. So it's not going to be quite as easy to get it, but probably no harder than it is to get a flu vaccine and every fall walking into your local um, uh, pharmacy to get it. So that will probably be the, the main way that people are getting vaccinated going forward. Could you share with us what you know, the recent data is, is telling us about the effectiveness of the Johnson Johnson vaccine as well? as the safety. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, Johnson Johnson just made an announcement that the J&J vaccine is proving to be highly effective against the Delta variant. Um, this just came out, did just come out yesterday. Um, there were about 11 million Americans had received the, the Delta, the J- Johnson & Johnson variant. And there were news reports beginning last week that was reported without a lot of attribution that even a lot of physicians who had received the J&J vaccine were now going to get a second vaccine of J&J or some other variety to make sure that they were they had adequate immunity against Delta. What this is demonstrating is the the first the one shot is just fine and that's probably not going to be not going to be necessary. Some of the uh, Initial news reports about the fears on the J&J came about because of the the outbreak that happened on the in the Yankees early in June, where they had received the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and became infected anyway. The, what doesn't get said is that they they never would have known that they were infected, but they were on a, a very uh, frequent testing schedule and it came up that they were positive and they were never they never got sick. So the Johnson Johnson vaccine is very effective against preventing disease. It's not quite as effective against preventing asymptomatic infection. Um, but now we've we've demonstrated that the vaccine is in fact uh, pr- just just about equally effective against the delta as it is against the other strains. So it is still a good vaccine. Fred, I know you're in constant contact with your colleagues overseas. Uh, uh, Is there anything that you think would be relevant to the audience, particularly as they think about the potential for travel uh, overseas during the summer months? Uh, Anything that our audience, as they contemplate uh, traveling abroad? Well, Well, the big concern is the developing countries and the low vaccination rate in those countries And because there's a low vaccination rate, uh, there is a lot of uh, virus circulating. And the more individuals that are infected, the more likely there will be a new mutation, which could create a new variant that could escape the protection of the vaccine. Therefore, I think travel to developing countries 
even with vaccination, is uh, a matter of concern and should only done if absolutely necessary. Travel within Europe and areas where the vaccination rate is higher, I think the likelihood of an escape variant is, is significantly lower. And uh, certainly when you're on the plane, you have to wear a mask. And I would probably avoid most uh, crowded, closed environments just because there may be some variants floating around in Europe that we don't have in the U.S. Um, so I wouldn't be quite as relaxes in the U.S., uh, but I think it's reasonable to consider travel to those countries. I agree completely. Um, doing the typical touristy things, going to tourist destinations, going to museums, going to things like that, just fine. Now, be aware that in most of Europe, you masks are required uh, inside any type of indoor environment, such as a museum. But the things that you want to avoid are things like going to clubs at night, going to bars. Uh, those places, for one thing, they're populated by a younger portion of the population. It's the younger portion of the population who is not getting vaccinated. They're the ones who are where this outbreak is. is uh, The increased rates that we're seeing because of Delta is most commonly occurring. So yes, go have your vacations, but just be a little circumspect about the things that you decide to do during your vacation. The good news is if you wear your mask, the likelihood of you contracting anything during the plane flight is really pretty much, uh, it's excluded. You won't, it won't happen to you. I worry about taking the mask off just because it's, even though there's tremendous exchange of air, it's still a very small environment. For those reasons, I, I think it's best to keep your mask on the entire time if you can. I did some fairly um, significant, I was involved with some studies on, on uh, in respiratory infections on airplanes. And they're generally speaking on modern airliners, in coach class even, you do not spread infection beyond, if the person who is sick can only spread the infection to the two rows ahead of them and the one row behind them. That's as far as uh, as it's really seen to go. And then typically only on their side of the plane. And the reason for this is the way that airflow on planes go, that it, it knocks it knocks anything down to the ground fairly quickly within within basically one meter. Um, and then the other thing is that air, the airplanes naturally have air exchanges at a greater than 30 per hour. And most of that air exchange, while some of it's filtered, a, the great bulk of that air exchange is made up of external air that is brought in, compressed in compressors on the engines, and then brought into the um, the cabin environment. So it, it's it has actually some of the some of the best air around. But you still you don't know who's in the the that one row ahead of you or the two rows behind you who could be the the index case reaching you. The takeaways here are that you know people generally can travel more risk in developing countries, use a lot of common sense in terms of where you're going, the population you're mingling with. Uh, on planes, uh, try to keep the mask on as much as possible. David, the one other thing that I'd like to throw in there regarding travel over the summer, especially international travel, is not so much the disease, well, I don't want to minimize the disease risk, but we've, you just summarized all of that. But I, I like to call it the administrative risk. 
are rules going to change? Is somebody because of some country, because of their perception of increased risk from Delta or some other variant yet to be named, perhaps this, this new Kappa variant, um, is there going, are they going to reinstate some type of testing uh, or vaccination requirement program in the middle of your trip? Uh, and that could really throw off. So if you're traveling, you need to be on at least a daily basis watching the news, watching where you the any uh, government directions coming out of where you are or where you're going to, or importantly, for coming home. Of course, if you're vaccinated, your risk is much lower because we're seeing most new requirements do have differing requirements for vaccinated versus unvaccinated people. Uh, unlike the United States, which does not yet acknowledge vaccination is changing your admissibility. Uh, people do need to keep a close eye on what's happening around them. So, Fred and Bill, uh, again, thank you for your insights this week. Look forward to next week. Um, Truly, um, you're you're separating fact from fiction. Your close attention to the data has made a great difference to the audience. So, uh, thank you very much. Great. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. And one last point is that Anheuser-Busch announced that if the United States gets to 70% vaccination rate among adults over the 4th of July weekend, then it's a a beer on Anheuser-Busch for everybody in America. (laughs) So, yeah, I I, I saw that, Phil. The question is, where do you go to get it? And then then we want to look at the statistics about drunk driving. Okay. <laughs> One beer is not going to do it. <laughs> All right. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. 